0: Hey, it's Guy here, and I have a question for you. What do you think would happen if you started a company with no rules and no bosses? Well, you're about to find out. This episode originally aired in April 2015. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz. So, um, so, do you want to hear something really cool?
3: Yes.
2: Okay, take a listen. Do you know what that is? I think that could be the sound of ant feet stampeding through their nest.
0: Now, I know what you're thinking. That was a really good guess.
2: I'm Deborah Gordon. I'm a professor of biology at Stanford, and I study ants.
0: Deborah, of course, had actually heard this recording before. It's from an Australian sound engineer, Stephen Frost, who captured the sound of some ants crawling over little tiny microphones. They're loud. They are loud. Yeah. I guess if you put similar microphones on the sidewalks of like New York City, it would it would sound kinda similar.
2: Yeah, I think it would be a lot more chaotic.
0: What were you interested in that got you into ants?
2: Well, I've always liked finding the pattern underneath a process that seems disordered or turbulent. Actually, my first interest was in music theory, so it was a revelation to find out about the rules of counterpoint, to understand that not only is a piece by Bach very beautiful, but it also is following rules. So you can't move in parallel fourths, you can't move in parallel fifths. Each note can only follow certain other notes, can only take certain steps. The music has to follow those rules. But of course, when you're listening, you don't know anything about the rules. You just hear this beautiful music. And for me, it was amazing to realize that underneath this wonderful sound was a pattern and a system.
0: And that is exactly why Deborah Gordon loves ants. Because underneath all that chaos is a system, too, a system that you probably encounter every day.
2: So harvester ants in the desert have evolved to deal with the problem of conserving water. They have to spend water to get water. So when an ant is out in the desert sun foraging, it loses water to the air. Yeah. But they get their water out of the seeds that they eat. So the colony has to regulate foraging, and they do this with a very simple system of feedback. An ant doesn't leave the nest unless it's met enough ants returning with food.
0: And a meeting for an ant is just a quick little touch. That's right,
2: where they're smelling each other with their antennae. Yeah,
0: I mean, ants clearly don't have meetings all day.
2: That Now, that's one of the good things about being an ant. No yeah,
0: meetings. Yeah, no meetings at all. So in an ant colony in the desert, when there's more food outside...
2: The ants find it faster, and they come back faster, and more ants inside go out to get it. And when there isn't very much food out there, they come back very slowly, and ants don't go out.
0: Now, that system of organization is surprisingly similar to something we humans came up with.
2: So when they first set up the Internet, operating costs were very high. So they set up a protocol that doesn't let a data packet go out until it gets an acknowledgement from the router that the previous data packet had the bandwidth to go on. Huh. So we invented for the Internet a very similar algorithm to one that has evolved in desert ants many, many millions of years. And we just invented the internet yesterday. That's
0: incredible. I mean, it would would seem to suggest there is a reason why we came to that algorithm. And there's a reason why it works, because it's been tested for millions of years.
2: That's right. And I think for situations where we don't have the right algorithm yet, we could look to see, well, how has nature solved that problem? And maybe we could use that solution.
0: It's possible for even the most chaotic systems to be organized, and sometimes in ways that would never occur to us. On the show today, how and why we organize stories and ideas about new ways of handling complexity in the workplace.
4: If you find you need to come here, come here. If you're good at working at home, work at home. We just want to make sure that you are self-directed.
5: New ways of organizing your family. Nothing has been more top-down through history than the family. The problem is, the life that we are sending our kids into is not top-down anymore. Organizing disaster relief.
1: But it just was crazy to us that we showed up and spontaneously decided to give orders, and that was fine.
0: And why organized systems sometimes still fail. We
3: know how to, you know, go and occupy a park together, but we don't yet know how to think together.
0: Most of the systems we'll hear about this episode, of course, are human systems... But Deborah Gordon says, if you start with how ants are organized, you're
2: going in the same order that evolution went. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> right.
0: perfect. That's and she says, you can actually learn a lot from ants
2: about how effective a noisy, messy system can be.
0: Here's Deborah's TED Talk.
2: We could learn from this about other systems like brains and data networks that we engineer what all these systems have in common is that there's no central control. An ant colony consists of sterile female workers. Those are the ants you see walking around. And then one or more reproductive females who just lay the eggs. They don't give any instructions, even though they're called queens. They don't tell anybody what to do. So in an ant colony, there's no one in charge. And all systems like this without central control are regulated using very simple interactions. Ants interact using smell. They smell with their antennae, and they interact with their antennae. So when one ant touches another with its antennae, it can tell, for example, if the other ant is a nestmate and what task that other ant has been doing. So when one ant meets another, it doesn't matter which ant it meets, And they're actually not transmitting any kind of complicated signal or message. All that matters to the ant is the rate at which it meets other ants. And all of these interactions taken together produce a network. So just as a neuron adds up its stimulation from other neurons to decide whether to fire, an ant adds up its stimulation from other ants to decide whether to forage.
0: Which brings us back to the main idea Deborah Gordon thinks we can take from ants. The brain, like an ant colony and so many other systems in nature, has no central control. And yet, we humans have set up so many of our systems in exactly the opposite way. From feudal systems of kings and noblemen to modern government, corporations, the military, someone at the top is
2: always in control. But in a blade of grass, there's no central control. And in a human body, there's no central control. Nobody's telling one of your blood cells, okay, you go over here. And then when you get there, you're going to meet this immune cell. And this is what you should do when that happens. So systems without central control are everywhere in nature. Yeah. Uh, But if you think about the feudal system, it's not only that the king has this power, but it's also the king constantly has to persuade everybody that he has this power, right? and everybody has to keep reinforcing the idea that he has this power. So it doesn't just sit there. It has to constantly be maintained and reinforced and controlled and fought over. So it takes a lot of work to maintain a hierarchy.
0: Which doesn't really apply to the ant world.
2: That's right. The ants don't do that work, and our bodies don't do that work. And Maybe, in a way, it's more effective and efficient to have a system without any central control where the whole thing can keep working without having to do all that extra effort of maintaining a hierarchy. There are more than 12,000 species of ants in every conceivable environment that operate without central control. Using only simple interactions, ant colonies have been performing amazing feats, for more than 130 million years. We have a lot to learn from them. Thank you.
0: Deborah Gordon, you can see both of her TED Talks about how ants are organized at TED.com. So, even in the least organized situations, there has to be someone who makes things function, someone like Morgan O'Neill.
1: Hi, guy. Oh my god, I'm nervous. Morgan grew
0: up in a place called Munson, Massachusetts.
1: There are two pizza places, one grocery store, probably three liquor stores. We don't even have a stoplight.
0: And a few years ago, on one summer day, a big storm... The
1: sky was a very funny color.
0: ...was about to change Munson forever.
1: Apparently, hail had started falling, sizes bigger than anyone had seen before. And my dad and my brother were driving home at the time and my brother even turned on his camera to capture a movie of the hail because it was just so impressive when they finally got home you can hear the change in the sound on the camera you can hear this roar
4: The tornadoes hit about 19 communities here in western Massachusetts.
6: Parts of Monson remain a barren landscape. A
4: wind-driven storm of historic proportions.
6: Yesterday's tornado tore up downtown Monson. Dozens of buildings were just ripped
1: apart. Everything got scrambled. Homes turned into piles of matchsticks left in or next to holes where basements belong you know just basement hole after basement hole after basement hole you could just walk up to someone's front step and jump into their basement if you want because nothing's going to stop you there's no home there anymore
0: Morgan and her sister Katria told the story about what happened to their town on the Ted stage you'll hear Katria's voice first
6: so tornadoes don't happen in Massachusetts and i was cleverly standing in the front yard when one came over the hill after a lamp post flew by my family and i sprinted into the basement Trees were thrown against the house, the windows exploded. When we finally got out the back door, transformers were burning in the street.
1: We live across the street from an historic church that had lost its very iconic steeple in the storm. It had become a community gathering place overnight. The town hall and the police department had also suffered direct hits, and so people wanting to help or needing information went to the church.
6: We walked up to the church because we heard that they had hot meals, but when we arrived, We found problems. There were a couple large, sweaty men with chainsaws standing in the center of the church. But nobody knew where to send them because no one knew the extent of the damage yet. And as we watched, they became frustrated and left to go find somebody to help on their own. So we started organizing. Why? It had to be done.
0: Morgan and Katria set up a table and told people where to go and what to do. And accidentally, they became the leaders.
1: It just was crazy to us that we showed up and spontaneously decided to give orders. And that was fine.
0: Coming up, how two 20-somethings got a town knocked down by an EF3 tornado back on its feet. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, getting organized. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First to Goldman Sachs. Get insights from some of the world's leading thinkers on markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. You'll hear discussions on topics with far-reaching implications like climate change, autonomous driving, and the future of China's economic growth, plus much more. That's Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play, and at gs.com slash podcast. Thanks also to TIAA. Whether it's investing, advice, banking, or retirement, TIAA believes smart financial decisions should enable life, not define it. Because real success isn't just measured in zeros. It's having a career that delivers meaning and purpose. It's connecting with family and friends. And it's giving back. TIAA calls this the new success story. And they want to help you achieve it every day. Learn more at TIAA.org. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about how and why we organize.
1: Yeah, I mean, who would you say is in charge in this situation? This is Morgan O'Neill, who we just
0: heard from before the break.
1: It's not clear.
0: After a tornado hit her hometown of Munson, Massachusetts, Morgan and her sister Katria decided to step up because nobody else was going to.
1: We had a volunteer emergency manager who was out of town at the time, unfortunately. And that person would be the most obvious one in charge. We had selectmen who had never dealt with anything like this before. We had a police department that could barely hold on to public safety, which of course is number one. And so it was just, it wasn't even obvious who was supposed to think about telling people what to do. And so we came up to the church and we said, hey, we want to help out. We want to bring you infrastructure.
0: I mean, did anybody question you? I mean, like, no one was like, wait a minute, who who put you in charge?
1: So Okay, so sometimes I would wear shirts from high school. And so my sister and I, we looked very young. And sometimes people would ask me, oh, honey, are you going to graduate this year? And they would mean graduate from in High School. But in the same breath, they would agree to do what I had just directed them to do. Wow. (laughs) It was remarkable how having an air of... Confidence and looking like you're in charge will allow you to tell anybody to do anything. Yeah. And so we were very rarely questioned. Donating clothing we should really inventory the donations that are piling up here.
6: Yeah, and we need a hotline Can you make a Google voice number? Yeah, sure, and we need to tell people what not to bring I'll make a Facebook account. Can you print flyers for the neighborhoods? Yeah, but we don't even know what houses are accepting help at this point. We need to canvas and send out volunteers We need to tell people what not to bring. Hey, there's a news truck. I'll tell them. You got my number off the news We don't need any more freezers uh-huh. And Six the insurance won't cover it. You need a crew to tarp your roof. Someone, Someone get, get me post-its! It! And then, the rest of the community figured out that we had answers. I can
1: donate three water heaters, but someone needs to come pick them up.
6: You sent me to that place on Washington Street yesterday, and now I'm covered in poison ivy. So, this is what filled our days. We had to learn how to answer questions quickly, and to solve problems in about a minute or less, because otherwise, something more urgent would come up, and it just wouldn't get done.
1: We didn't get our authority from the Board of Selectmen, or the Emergency Management Director, or the United Way. We just started answering questions and making decisions because someone, anyone, had to. And why not me? I'm a campaign organizer, I'm good at Facebook, and there's two of me. I think that what we did would have been impossible without a way to talk with people on the Internet. Because whenever the church needed something, we would ask the Internet for it.
0: Technology played a big part in the relief effort. They used that Facebook page to get the word out.
1: Please bring ice. Please don't bring clothes. Right now we need lunch meats.
0: Google Docs to keep track of volunteers. We can search for
1: it. We can sort it.
0: And that Google voice number that served as a hotline, that was basically Morgan's personal cell phone.
1: We put it on Facebook. The news picked it up. We handed it out on printed pages. And... (laughs) You know, it's it's good that this existed, but it was also awful for me to have the town's hotline in my pocket, <laughs> you know? Because
0: <laughs> your phone was constantly ringing.
1: 16 hours a day. Oh my God, it got oh so bad. It, at some point, one of the days well into the recovery, I, I could barely speak anymore. I was just so overwhelmed with, you know, these micro decisions I was having to make every six seconds, you know? People are asking you a million things
6: and someone just has to decide something. The point is, if there's a flood or a fire or a hurricane, you, or somebody like you, are going to step up and start organizing things. The other point is that it is hard.
1: Lying on the ground after another 17-hour day, Katria and I would empty our pockets and try to place dozens of scraps of paper into context, all bits of information that had to be remembered and matched in order to help someone. After another day and a shower at the shelter, we realized it shouldn't be
6: this hard. In a country like ours, where we breathe Wi-Fi, Leveraging technology for a faster recovery should be a no-brainer. Systems like the ones that we were creating on the fly could exist ahead of time. And if some community member is in this organizing position in every area, after every disaster, these tools should exist.
1: So, we decided to build them. A recovery in a box, something that could be deployed after every disaster by any local organizer.
0: That recovery in a box turned into recovers.org. It's a website Katria and Morgan co-founded where any town can adopt their system to organize its own relief effort right away, right after disaster strikes. And about 50 communities have used it, from Dallas, Texas, to Seward, Alaska. And Morgan says the idea behind their effort is that any community can come together like theirs did, as long as they have the right tools.
1: I don't think that it's possible for two little humans to do it themselves at this even the small scale of a small town and so there was a lot of autonomy this church where people worked out of was impressive it ended up basically spontaneously forming different departments like there was clearly the incredible force in the kitchen where this team of women that shout at you if you came into the kitchen because you're going to be in their way but they would pump out a thousand meals every couple hours and then there were all of the volunteers downstairs who had basically filled the basement with a small Walmart. And that took a lot of autonomy. We certainly weren't micromanaging. I don't want you to think that we made every decision. We just made lots of the arbitrary ones that hadn't yet been made.
0: I mean, do you think that, that you are able to organize people easier than others? I mean, I mean do you think it's something that's inherent or, or is it something that you can develop?
1: I want and need to believe that anyone can do this. And I think that people just rise to challenges. And I hope, you know, when people see something wrong or something bad, that they speak up and do something about it. The only thing you need is to believe that you can positively impact a crappy situation. Whether it's with a chainsaw or with your hands or with, you know a loud voice like mine.
0: Morgan O'Neill, you can see Morgan and Katria's full TED Talk at ted.npr.org. So organization can be born out of a crisis, but sometimes it just happens.
3: Let's say there's 10 of you in a room and you're all bored and you're watching a talk, but nobody knows that everybody's bored. You know, everybody thinks I'm the only one bored and this must be fascinating. You're just kind of forcing yourself to act interested. And then somebody gets up and says, this is so boring. And everybody goes, I think so too, right? <laughs> right. That's what social media does. It can create a synchronized moment where everybody gets together.
0: This is Zeynep Tufeki. She studies how that dynamic happens on a global scale. And how social media fuels protest movements.
3: I find them very fascinating aspects of human societies when a bunch of people get together and say, we'd like to change something. In
0: 2011, Zeynep went to Cairo's Tahrir Square to see how those protests gained steam through social media. And then in 2013, when she started hearing about protests in Istanbul, just blocks from where she was born, up
3: knew right away. I have to see this thing that's happening that has never happened in Turkey, which is a spontaneous, leaderless, grassroots, social media-fueled, new kind of movement.
0: This was the Gezi Park protests in Turkey back in 2013. It originally started as a demonstration to protect a park, But then it turned into a protest against the government.
3: Tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people just showed up.
0: And they created a sort of pop-up community right there in Gezi Park.
3: They organized the food distribution. There was a soundstage. There were workshops and there was yoga. And somebody remarked to me, it was almost like being retired in the world's greatest retirement community. Except you got tear gassed occasionally.
0: But this was all done primarily on social media at first.
3: It's both, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who are discussing in person and then they start following each other on Twitter. The social media part is integral to it because you can do by just a few people what would have taken hundreds of people maybe without these tools.
0: This is how movements start now. The Green Revolution in Iran, Occupy Wall Street, the Arab Spring, all driven by the power of social media. But as technology makes organizing easier, it also raises a question.
3: Why haven't successful outcomes become more likely as well?
0: Here's Zainab's TED Talk.
3: In embracing digital platforms for activism and politics, are we overlooking some of the benefits of doing things the hard way? I believe so. I believe that the rule of thumb is, easier to mobilize does not always mean easier to achieve gains. To understand this, I went back to Turkey about a year after the Gezi protests, and I interviewed a range of people, from activists to politicians, from both the ruling party and the opposition party and movements. I found that the Gezi protesters were despairing. They were frustrated, and they had achieved much less than what they had hoped for. This echoed what I've been hearing around the world from many other protesters that I'm in touch with. And I've come to realize that part of the problem is that today's protests have become a bit like climbing Mount Everest with the help of 60 Sherpas, and the internet is our Sherpa. What we're doing is taking the fast routes and not replacing the benefits of the slower work.
0: Like, for example, the slow, painstaking work that went into building the civil rights movement. Because imagine the sheer logistics that took. It didn't just start one day when Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus. That moment was the culmination of a lot of planning and organizing. For one thing, Rosa Parks had been involved with the NAACP.
3: And she wasn't the first person to refuse to go to the back of the bus. There had been many before. It's just that was chosen by the organization as the right moment. So how did one
0: woman's arrest lead to a citywide protest in just a few days?
3: To our modern, maybe 21st century eyes and ears, it might be like, I'll put it on Facebook. Well, you won't, there is none, right? I'll put it on television, no, you will be censored. right? So they had about 68 organizations that already crisscrossed the town of Montgomery, which is how they got the word out. People called each other, talked to each other, uh, distributed leaflets. Now, these people who were boycotting the buses, the black uh, workers, they have to go to work So they organized this massive system of carpools. So what they had to do was basically meet every day almost, just to take care of the arduous logistics. It's not a simple undertaking. They operated a shadow bus company for a year with no budget, and that is quite impressive. The civil rights movement in the United States navigated a minefield of political dangers, faced repression and overcame, won major policy concessions, and navigated and innovated through risks. In contrast, three years after Occupy sparked that global conversation about inequality, the policies that fuel it are still in place. Europe was also rocked by anti-austerity protests, but the continent didn't shift its direction. In embracing these technologies, are we overlooking some of the benefits of slow and sustain?
0: I mean, you think about the civil rights movement or, or the women's rights movement or the gay rights movement, and they seem so enduring. But then you think about Arab Spring or Occupy or Gezi Square, And you wonder what happened to them?
3: They follow a different trajectory. We've seen a pattern in terms of how these movements go bust in the initial phase. All of a sudden, you go from zero to 100 miles an hour. And when the repressive forces come at you, that's the first curve that very fast car has to turn. And they've only been together 10 days. That doesn't give you enough organizational depth. It's not just about whether formal or informal. There's something that comes from working together and making decisions day in and day out over a long period of time. You, you, know, you develop ways of trusting each other and you develop ways of decision-making together that this way of participating in movements, I think doesn't allow them to learn how to do.
0: It would seem like the difference between, like, the Civil Rights Movement and and these other movements is pretty clear that it's organization. That's the difference.
3: I would say organization is probably the key difference. To be fair, of course, things are very young, and we've just started, and it's not like the Civil Rights Movement found the right organizational form on day one— You know, you can use technology to do things in an ad hoc manner, or you can use it to build long-lasting communities that know how to think together. But again, it has to be reflective and thoughtful because if you just sort of say, oh, here's my hashtag, and I'm just going to sort of get something big, that doesn't lead to the next step either. The organizational question looms really large over these wave of movements. Movements today have to move beyond participation at great scale very fast and figure out how to think together collectively, develop strong policy proposals, create consensus, figure out the political steps and relate them to leverage because all these good intentions and bravery and sacrifice by itself are not gonna be enough. To understand all this, I interviewed a top official from a ruling party in Turkey and I asked him, how do you do it? They, too, use digital technology extensively, so that's not it. So what's the secret? Well, he told me, he said, the key is he never took sugar with his tea. Said, what has that got to do with anything? Well, he said his party starts getting ready for the next election the day after the last one. And he spends all day, every day, meeting with voters in their homes, in their wedding parties, circumcision ceremonies. And then he meets with his colleagues to compare notes. With that many meetings every day, with tea offered at every one of them, which he could not refuse, because that'd be rude, he could not take even one cube of sugar per cup of tea, because that would be many kilos of sugar, and he would even calculated exactly how many kilos, and at that point I realized why he was speaking so fast. <laughs> he had met in the afternoon, and he was already way over-caffeinated. But his party won two major elections within a year of the Gezi protests with comfortable margins. Now, to be sure, governments have different resources to bring to the table, it's not the same game, but the differences are instructive. And like all such stories, this is not a story just of technology. It's what technology allows us to do, converging with what we want to do.
0: Do you think that humans are like almost naturally inclined to organize, like almost like it's part of our DNA.
3: Yes. Yes. People I've interviewed tell me that they've never felt better in their lives than they do in the middle of that protest, in that middle of occupation. And in fact, I think that's what draws a lot of people to protests is that in our everyday life, we're not that empowered. You know, a lot of times our job is routine and we're told what to do. And in a protest situation, you're like, here. You know, empower yourself and do things. And people do amazing things. The question is, how do you take that amazing energy and build a lasting organization that's not just about taking care of immediate needs, but about decision-making and staying together and navigating?
0: is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill. You can see her full talk at ted.npr.org. More ideas about organizing in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Gillette. Did you know the tip of a Gillette razor blade is thinner than a single brain cell? That precision is the work of many brain cells. The hundreds of men and women at Gillette's research and development team have spent over 4,700 years combined working to make your shave closer and more comfortable. And now you can get blades for less. Visit Gillette.com slash Gillette.com lower prices. Gillette, the best a man can get. Pricing applies to select products and is at the sole discretion of the retailer. Thanks also to Paramount Pictures and Black Bear Pictures with the new film Suburbicon. The film stars Matt Damon as a man who goes to great lengths to protect his family after a murder disrupts their quiet community. Variety says it will reel you in and keep you hooked until the end. Also starring Julianne Moore and Oscar Isaac, directed by George Clooney. Suburbicon arrives in theaters October 27th. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, Getting Organized, stories and ideas of how and why we organize. So think about some of the most top-down organizations you know, the military, political parties, multinational corporations, and maybe the place you work.
4: There are too many similarities between the way we run businesses and the way people run boarding schools.
0: This is Ricardo Semler, and Ricardo is... A businessman.
4: Here are all the rules. Here's how you follow them. This is what you can do. This is what you cannot do. Before you do this, do that.
0: Which, he it. says, is just so, what his father's company was like when Ricardo first started to work there.
4: A pyramid hierarchy, president, vice presidents, directors, and so forth.
0: The company made pumps and propellers for ships. This was in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in the late 1970s. Design.
4: The people who were there were very far from feeling free or looking happy about what they're doing. It's something where people end up bogged down very quickly by the organizational boxes they've been put in, by the people they have to ask authorization from, the people they have to ship papers out to.
0: And this is more or less how the company operated until Ricardo took it over in his early 20s.
4: And I said, I don't want to spend... 50 years of my life making people come on time and then giving them a gold watch for having done so for 30 years, there must be a better way of organizing. And I started asking questions, basically asking why do we want to know how many hours a week people work? Why can't people know what our profit and strategies are and so forth? And as we asked these questions, it became obvious that the answers were just old-fashioned and not current anymore.
0: So Ricardo Semler decided to radically reorganize the company, His first day on the job, he fired most of the managers. He ripped out the punch clocks for time cards, and he started to create a system of self-organization. And over time, the company, which is called Semco, became hugely successful from 140 employees to thousands. They make rocket fuel, they build factories, they manage ATMs all across Brazil. And Ricardo Semler has turned his ideas on radical reorganization into a movement. Here he is on the TED stage.
4: This is a complicated company with thousands of employees, hundreds of millions of dollars of business. We looked at it and we said, why do we want to know what time you come to work? Why are we building these headquarters? Is it not an ego issue that we want to look solid and big and important and so forth, but we're dragging you two hours across town because of it?" So we started asking questions one by one. How do we find people? We'd go out and try and recruit people. We'd say, look, when you come to us, we're not gonna have two or three interviews and then you're gonna be married to us for life. That's not how we do the rest of our life. So have your interview and then come back. Spend an afternoon, spend a whole day, talk to anybody you want, make sure we are the bride you thought we were and not all the we put into our own ads. (laughs) Slowly we went to a process where we'd say things like, we don't want anyone to be a leader in the company if they haven't been interviewed and approved by their future subordinates. Every six months, everyone gets evaluated anonymously, and this determines whether they should continue in that leadership position, which is many times situational, as you know.
0: All this sounds like a, like a recipe for anarchy.
4: Yeah, but when you think about it, Guy, the very uh, sophisticated organizations are either self-managed or are managed by relatively chaotic outlooks. When you think about how geese fly north, how ants go from left to right, how traffic uh, manages itself, how the world economy manages itself, there ain't no leader there. Okay, but how do, like, how do all the teams at the company
0: like know what they're supposed to do and, and when it has to get done?
4: It's, when, you, when you're imagining a business that you know very little about, let's say you're, you're looking at a biscuit manufacturing business or running ATMs, it sounds very far-fetched. When you look at your own life, people know a heck of a lot more people who've been in that business than they even care to reveal at the first moment. When you start putting people together and say, okay, guys, what are we supposed to do? Well, what are we trying to do? We're trying to deliver eight pumps with 300 kilowatt motors to a shipyard in Korea by next May. Okay, so who's gonna do what? And in two minutes, it's all very clear. The only difference is that they all have a tremendous commitment to make that delivery and they'll make it on time. Over time, we started asking other questions. We would say things like, why can't people set their own salaries? There's only three things you need to know. How much people make inside the company? How much people make in somewhere else in a similar business? And how much we make in general? to see whether we can afford it. So let's give people these three pieces of information. So we started having in the cafeteria a computer where you could go in and you could ask what someone spent, how much someone makes, what they make in benefits, what the company makes, what the margins are, and so forth. As this information started coming to people, we would said things like, we don't want to know how much holidays you're taking. We don't want to know where you work. We had, at one point, 14 different offices around town. And we'd say, go to the one that's closest to your house, to the customer you're going to visit today, don't tell us where you are.
0: I mean, the thing is, is that when you organize something, it's like it's a method to establish some kind of control, but it's almost like you organized your company to seed
4: control. Yeah, because the idea that having control generates security is a very silly idea. You know, you think about any kind of organization that's definitely in place. You know, think the U.S. government, you think Congress, you think an enormous company. Do they really have any idea what's going to happen 90 days ahead of time? The amount of things that are completely out of control are enormous. And so a board meeting is very much in order. And people start at 2 p.m. and end at 6.30. And 6.30, all their cars are waiting. They go out with their little files and they say, guys, we did a great job. We're now going in this direction. But deep down, they know that there's an enormous amount of BS in that. They really have no idea of what their competitors are going to do, what the economy is going to be. And so the idea that they're in control is a complete fraud, which everyone plays along with because it's in everyone's interest to pretend.
0: Ricardo Semmler, he's the chairman of Semco Partners, but no longer CEO. Like all of his employees, he gets graded on his work. And about a decade ago, he was actually voted out of the top executive position, a decision he says he's totally fine with. Here's how he ended
4: his TED Talk. I used to, I taught uh, MBAs at MIT for a time, and I ended up one day at the Mont Auburn Cemetery. It was a beautiful cemetery in, in Cambridge. And I was walking around, it was my birthday, and I was thinking, what do I want to be remembered for? And I did another stroll around, and the second time, another question came to me which did me better, which was, Why do I want to be remembered at all? <laughs> uh, I, I always come back to variations of the question that my son asked me when he was three uh, Dad, why do we exist? And so, what we've done all of these years is very simple, is use a little tool which is ask three whys in a row. Because the first why, you always have a good answer for, the second why, Starts getting difficult. By the third why, you don't really know why you're doing what you're doing. And so what I want to leave you with is the seed and the thought that maybe if you do this, you will come to the question, what for? And over time, you'll have a much wiser future. Thank you very much. You can hear Ricardo
0: Semler's entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, stories and ideas of how and why We organize. All right, Bruce, let me me describe to you the last 15 hours of my life. Okay? This is what I did. I was talking here with Bruce Feiler. He wrote a book called The Secrets of Happy Families. Not because I have one, but because I wanted one, okay? Bruce has two young kids, and like me, I left at 5.30 like a lot of parents. And I rushed to the supermarket to buy some groceries to make dinner. He sometimes
5: feels a little overwhelmed. Every single conversation that I have about families begins in one way or the other with this idea. A five-year-old and a three-year-old. The
0: idea that modern family life... Jumping up and down. ...is chaotic. And I'm trying to make dinner and I'm making the chicken. (laughs) I'm making the broccoli. And even though the momentum of that chaos feels unavoidable, Bruce says there is a better way.
5: If you want to run a marathon, you have to plan it. Yeah. Okay, if you want to lose weight, you need to map it out. And I, my wife is working late, have
0: got to get them into their bed. Whatever,
5: if you want to be a better painter, you just can't go from zero to Picasso. You've got to take baby steps and accumulate small wins.
0: I get a call, a work call, i got to do that.
5: Why is it that we don't do this with our family? Why is it that we don't have time to sit down and say, this is what we're striving for. And then at 1130,
0: I then realized that I haven't prepared for my interview with Bruce Feiler, <laughs> which is happening in just a few hours. Not only that, what we need, Bruce Feiler argues, is a
5: system to organize all this chaos. It's chaotic, but it's also growing. Yeah. And we're all in it together. It's like a tech startup. Yeah. It's like a startup where basically everybody has to contribute. You have to adapt all the time. You need some order, but you got to keep moving forward. So keep that idea in your head that, in some ways, a
0: family is kind of like a scrappy upstart business, as you listen to Bruce Feiler tell this next story on the TED stage.
5: In 1983, Jeff Sutherland was a technologist at a financial firm in New England. He was very frustrated with how software got designed. Companies followed the waterfall method, right, in which executives issued orders that slowly trickled down to programmers below, and no one had ever consulted the programmers. 83% of projects failed. They were too bloated or too out of date by the time they were done. Sutherland wanted to create a system where ideas didn't just percolate down, but could percolate up from the bottom and be adjusted in real time. He read 30 years of Harvard Business Review before stumbling upon an article in 1986 called The New New Product Development Game. It said that the pace of business was quickening. And by the way, this was 1986. Uh, And the most successful companies were flexible. It highlighted Toyota and Canon and likened their adaptable, tight-knit teams to rugby scrums. As Sutherland told me, we got to that article and said, that's it. In Sutherland's system, companies don't use large, massive projects that take two years. They do things in small chunks. Nothing takes longer than two weeks. So instead of saying, you guys go off into that bunker and come back with a cell phone or a social network, You say, you go off and come up with one element, then bring it back. Let's talk about it. Let's adapt.
0: This system of organization is called agile development. Today, it's used in corporations all over the world. And the basic idea, you succeed or you fail
5: quickly. And that is the great thing about this core agile idea, which it acknowledges that we have to be adapting all the time, but yet we need some structure to that adaptation.
0: There are literally dozens of books out there about how Agile can provide structure in the workplace. But Bruce Feiler's idea is that you can actually take certain core lessons from Agile and apply them to your family. So how do you do it?
5: The answer to that is you set aside a period of time each week where you are going to discuss how you're functioning as a family not how each individual person is doing, not how the five-year-old is doing. You talk about how you're functioning as a family, okay? Try to answer three questions. These are the core three agile questions. Yeah. Right? What's working well in our family this week? What's not working well? And what can we focus on in the week ahead? Because you're going to know this week ahead, guess what? Dad's got a business trip, okay? Therefore, everybody's going to have to adjust, You want them to say, I'm going to set the table and I'm going to clear the table where normally I do it once. Or I'm going to give myself a shower or I'm going to help my sibling do their homework. So one of my messages here is park the helicopter.
0: Bruce has actually tried this in his own family. He lets his two daughters take more responsibility for daily tasks. And he says the one thing that made this system of organization so much easier was a checklist of their
5: daily responsibilities. Get yourself a whiteboard or get a piece of paper and rather than you running around saying, brush your teeth and floss and lay out your clothes and and whatever else it might be as part of your bedtime routine, you're giving them the authority to do it themselves and it becomes much more inherent. But here's the thing, don't you make it. Say, we're gonna do this, I want you to list all the things you're gonna do in the morning and then we're gonna check them off. The week we introduced a morning checklist into our house, suddenly the most amazing thing started coming out of our daughter's mouths. What worked well this week? Getting over our fear of riding bikes, making our beds. What didn't work well? Our math sheets or uh, greeting visitors at the door. Like a lot of parents, our kids are something like Bermuda Triangles, like thoughts and ideas go in, but none ever comes out. I mean, at least not that are revealing. This gave us access suddenly to their innermost thoughts. But the, most, you know, the key idea of Agile is that teams essentially manage themselves. And we, it works in software, and it turns out that it works with kids. Our kids love this process. So they would come up with all these ideas. You know, greet five visitors at the door this week, get an extra 10 minutes of, of reading before bed. Kick someone, you know, lose desserts for a month. It, it turns out, by the way, our girls are little Stalins. We constantly have to kind of dial them back. <laughs> now look, naturally there's a gap between their kind of conduct in these meetings and their behavior the rest of the week. But the truth is it didn't really bother us. It felt like we were kind of laying these underground cables that wouldn't light up their world for many years to come. And by the way, research backs this up too. Children who plan their own goals, set weekly schedules, evaluate their own work, build up their frontal cortex, and take more control over their lives. So the bottom line is empower your children.
0: Can I tell you something? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something very personal. The the thing that like gives me the greatest sense of purpose is the chaos that comes from being a father. Like all the things that I have to do. It gives me a sense of self-worth more than anything else I do.
5: But meaning is different from happiness. Mm. And the research into meaning shows The reason that parenting is such a profound experience is because it gives us more meaning, because it makes us reflect on our own childhood. It makes us look at our children and realize where they've come from and to do things now based on where we hope they might get in the future. Because when they get older, if you expect your 15-year-old to go out and make a decision about whether to drink and drive – Okay, whether to use contraception, whether to experiment with drugs. If you have made every decision for that child along the way, you know why we do this? Because it's easier and we're usually right. It's not because we love them? No, it's not just no. because we love them. Right. It's because we know how much pressure <laughs> we have in our lives. Yes, we love them, but that is not enough. That is in, in some ways the the message here. Yeah. Right? What is the, one of the golden tickets of parenting is children who go off and are independent but are still connected to you in some way. So that when we all go like marbles spilling onto the floor into our individual lives uh, that we have that thing that will still connect us.
0: Bruce Feiler, his entire talk on Agile programming for your family can be found at ted.npr.org Get your house in order Hey everyone! Thanks for listening to our show this week on getting organized. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Janae West, with help from Daniel Shukin. Barton Girdwood is our intern in the front office. Eric Newsom and Portia robertson migus our partners at TED, are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
1: Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. President Donald Trump has no record of public service, but he does have a record in business and on TV. In our latest round of stories, we introduce you to the people who were there as he built an empire and a name. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.